Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta per social distancing protocols. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So today we're going to discuss, should I be thinking about my my second act? And um, I think about this question a lot, maybe more often than I have been. Um, I uh, last Saturday, we're recording this on uh, on May 8th, but last Saturday I had the audacity to uh, record my 50th trip around the sun. And uh, so I'm, I'm sort of in second act thinking territory uh, as well, perhaps, because um, I, I, I plan to live for a very, very, very long time. Um, I'm, I'm sort of greedy that way. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm also heavily involved in in, in, in business transitions, whether it's somebody who's selling a business or somebody who's buying a business as their, their so-called second act, or, uh, whether it's a, you know, succession planning. Um, and we've, we've had discussions about most or all of those topics, you know, uh, we've had a discussion on succession planning and how you hand a business off to the next generation. We've had a discussion on, how you go about selling your business and how you figure out the timing and what are the, some of the mechanics in, in doing that. But before you get to any of those phases, um, you know, the business owner or the executive has to reach a point where they decide that some kind of change is desirable and necessary. And, you know, the funny thing ab- about this is, is 10, 12, 15 years ago, we just knew that everybody by now, maybe even, yeah, maybe before now, was going to have to sell their businesses. They're just going to be too damn old. They weren't going to want to be in the businesses anymore. They're going to want to play golf, spend time with their grandchildren, do anything other than the businesses. So people like me, we were rubbing our hands and licking our chops because we thought there were just a bunch of businesses that were going to come on the market. And then a funny thing happened. A lot of people decided to hang on to their businesses, started to hang on to their careers. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, you know, one, I think, I think that the 0809 recession erased enough wealth and frankly just put the fear of God into enough people that they decided they were going to hang around and generate some more value, some more income for a few years before they moved on to that second thing or even entertain the risk of, of moving on to something different, even if that was going to be income producing. Um, and, and also what we've, we've, we've figured out, and again, having just turned 50, I, I appreciate this more than I ever did is, is that, you know, 65 ain't all that old anymore. Um, especially if you've not been working a, 
uh, a manual labor job. If, if you've taken care of yourself and if you're blessed with, with reasonably good genes, um, you can be viable and vibrant well into your seventies. And there are business owners who are hanging on to their business, even into, into their eighties. And so this demographic brick wall that we thought was going to happen really has not sure there's been an uptick in sales and transfers, but it has not been this rush to the door of millions of people feeling like they had to sell their businesses because there was a, uh, there was a countdown that was going on. Well, here we are a decade after the great recession and we now find ourselves in the COVID, whatever the heck this thing is. Um, I, I don't know what, you know, I speak eight languages. I don't know a word in any of them that properly describes this. Um, but at any rate, you know, we're, we're in this thing. And I think this is now prompting people to think more about that, that second act. We're seeing such dislocation. We're seeing such a, you know, my own personal view is that, is that we are, that we are not going to go back to what the world was like in February. I, I think that's gone. I think people are increasingly realizing that and they're expressing various stages of grief in doing so. And that means that certain jobs are going away, certain industries are going away, certain needs are going away. And in their wake, jobs, industries, and needs are being created and they're being defined in real time. And if there's ever a time when, when thinking about your second act, because you know, maybe, maybe that job is going away, maybe that, that company is going away, or maybe you, know, you just sort of see the writing on the wall. Maybe it's not going away today, but you see in 10 years, it's, it's, it's just not going to be the same thing. It's not going to be as rewarding for you to do it anymore. Um, you know, you may be thinking about, uh, uh, about some sort of, of, of second act or second career as, as it's often referred to. And uh, as it happens in, in my network, I know one of the best in the business at helping people figure out this, this second act thesis. I have friends who have worked with him and gone through the program. I've been honored to have at times been a mentor, uh, in, in the program, which is really interesting because at the time I was half the age of a lot of the people that he was serving. Um, uh, but he's really the expert on this and, and we're going to have a great conversation with, with my friend, Jim Dupree, who is founder of chapter two. He founded chapter two 12 years ago to help senior executives proactively set their compass for a career path going forward. That is both significant and satisfying. All of his clients are selected in part for a commitment to the pay it forward approach. And, th- and, and that's really important. You know, his, his clientele uh, is, is somebody that, that is, is not just sort of, I got mine, but it's somebody that is, uh, I got to give back. And, and, and Jim, you know, he just brings this, this, this breadth of experience. I, you look at his resume, it's like he's lived three lifetimes um, you know, he's been an entrepreneur, has raised millions of dollars of capital. He's been an angel investor, which I did not know. So we'll have to talk about that at some point offline. He's been a blue chip company executive holding executive positions in companies you may have heard of, such as IBM, Ford Motor Company, Coca-Cola Company, and, you know, and across a range of industries and functions, including manufacturing, financial services, consulting, and so forth. Um, he served as president of the Atlanta chapter of the National Association of Corporate Directors, which is a very exclusive, uh, very exclusive group. 
um, and was a founding board member of the New Carolinas chapter, and he was recognized as a board uh, Jim, and this is where I know Jim primarily, he co-founded and served as president of an organization called CEO NetWeavers and continues to serve on their operating committee. And CEO, Net, CEO NetWeavers, I can't believe they let me in, but it is a fantastic organization where it's, it's a group of service-minded current and former executives who want to take their knowledge, their networks, and give back to the next generation of professionals, business owners, entrepreneurs, to help them be successful and help position them to turn around and give back to the next generation that is coming back, uh, coming back, uh, but behind them. He is adjunct faculty at Kennesaw State University, which is a, a fantastic, uh, school, uh, on the outskirts of Atlanta and teaches their executive MBA classes. And I did not know this last point, which was he is the author of two strategy books for banks regarding effective use of the internet. Um, and uh, I actually do bank valuation on occasion, so I need to read those books. Um, so I'm going to ask him for autograph copies, but, uh, Jim, thanks so much for coming on the program. You're welcome. It's a delight to be here. And, uh, and I'm a big fan of Mike Blake's for all he does to help people too, by the way. Um, so thank you for that. So let, let's, let's jump into it. Um, so a lot of people know what a second act is may understand instinctively what a chapter two is, but not everybody does. So in, in your mind, in your mind, what, what is it and why do people need help figuring it out? Okay. Well, it's, 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 to me, it's a pivot. So, you know, going, uh, going up to the next level in an organization, moving from director to vice president or whatever is, is not a second act or moving to another position similar or maybe higher position in the same industry. The second act is really deciding that for whatever reason, I want to move on from what I've been doing and, and, uh, and go to something that's substantially different industry, a different major, different kind of a role. Uh, maybe it's leaving corporate America, buying a business, becoming an entrepreneur or moving from an operating role into consulting or moving to uh, become join a board of directors. So what are some signs that act one either is ending or should be, should be ended? How do you know, or what should start your thinking that maybe that's the kind of transition you need to really start thinking about? I, I think it's a couple of things, Mike, uh, 70% of people in corporate America say that they are not fully engaged in their job. That's a stunning number, yet it's been repeated uh, in many different surveys. And a third of those are meaningfully disengaged. So to them, either they don't like their, their leaders and they're turned off by their leaders, or the role has become mechanical or rote. It's I can do it in my sleep. It's not inspiring. I'm not really building anything. I'm just maintaining status quo. So when that happens, it's not fun. You don't skip into the into the building to go to work. You just kind of drag yourself in. The other one is industries are changing, as you mentioned in your opening. I mean, you know, a lot's going on, and 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 every industry is changing in many ways. But sometimes the industry is not as appealing as it was when you started. Sometimes the mission is not as appealing. Uh, so those two things are really the keys. And 
I call it the voice in your head. The people I work with will admit that they had a voice in their head a year or two before they really acted on that voice. It was telling them, you know, it's time to start thinking differently. So uh, there's a question I want to sneak in here and sort of get off the script because I, th- I think it's important. Um, when I think about second act, I tend to envision somebody that looks like me or maybe is a little bit older than I am. Um, you know, somebody that's had a longish chapter one and then they're ready to sort of cast aside. But then it occurred to me that that may not necessarily be true. In fact, I know for a fact that one of your clients who's a dear friend of mine is about five youngers, five, five, young, five years younger than I am. Um, uh, and I know somebody who I think effectively did a chapter two right out of college or right out of, as it turned out, law school. You can have a chapter two pretty early, can't you? You sure can. It's, it's uh, interesting. So the biggest single group by age group of our clients are people in their 50s. And they are generally saying, I really want to set a pavement. I want to lay the, the pathway to say that I can continue to be relevant uh, and enjoy the things I'm doing, not necessarily trying to reach higher levels at that point. But I just want to make sure that this plays out in a way that's enjoyable to me and to the degree possible that I have control over how long I do it. How long I'm in this role versus I find myself uh, being uh, ejected or as the British say, made redundant. Uh, The 40s are saying, I really want to decide if I uh, want to go for the brass ring. The, The tremendous sacrifices that are required to go for the top jobs. And so I want an independent view of what my probability of success is based on getting to know me really well. And then uh, what that journey looks like versus not going for the top ring, maybe giving up some comp, but, but having a better balance of life. And then people I work with in the thirties are saying, uh, I, what I'd really like to do is, is define this so that I can have a time with my family now and then I can accelerate my career in five years. So how do I lay that out? And you mentioned the ones out of college, Mike. And, you know, it's interesting because in my mind, everybody going to a top tier MBA school should go through a process like this because in general, they either leave to go to investment banking or consulting or in rare occasion to some corporation. They don't fully understand the 100 hour weeks that hmm. those things involve and the travel, and they haven't thought through what they would like to be doing in 10 years. So if they did think through and say, well, I may want to still do that at the start because it's a great foundation, but in 10 years, I want to own my own business, or in eight years, I want to own my own business, they would probably develop a different network even in MBA school, and they would probably take some different courses. So in the last group are the people in their 60s, and they're really saying, I, I want to lay this out in a way that says, that I'm, I'm shifting from uh, the title and the comp to uh, things that are more significant to me personally and to my family. Yeah, and, and, you know, sort of a corollary to that too, I think, well, let me ask you this. I suspect that one of the psychological hurdles that you have to overcome is the notion of sunk cost, right? I, I suspect that one area of resistance to taking on that second chapter is, well, I have a lot invested in chapter one. 
how do I just sort of let that go? Now, the accountant training in me, I'm not an accountant, but the accountant training in me says, well, rationally, you ought to think of that as a, as a sunk cost. And, and I have a friend I mentioned, you know, did an early chapter two. I, I, he actually happened to be my RA in college. And, and now we're back together here in Atlanta. You know, he went to law school, worked in law school for a year, and then decided that he hated it and went into technology, right? And that, that was kind of tough. But at the same time, you know, he'd already spent that money. So he's, it wasn't like he was going to get it back necessarily by going back and being a miserable, a miserable attorney. Does that ever enter the, the, the mindset of some of your clients? And if so, is that, how, do you, how do you kind of break that down? It really doesn't. I mean, I'm a person, I'm a big believer in we are where we are. Now, how do we move ahead? Okay. And, and people that what they're looking for is more significance and more satisfaction. And if they weren't getting it, then you got to walk away from that cost. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's one of the questions I think, Mike, is, is, uh, is there a need for a second act period? And as I look at a couple of numbers, so 50% of college students change their major uh, during college and whatever they thought they were going to do, then they go change. Maybe a funny analogy, but the divorce rate, the odds of staying married to the same person are probably 40%. And as you pointed out, we're all going to work for 50 years or more in today's world. So it would be very natural to say, I don't want to spend 50 years of my life doing the same thing, particularly if it's not making me happy. Um, now let me take the flip side. Are, are there signs where, and it sounds like it's a rarity, but the natural question is, you know, for some people, maybe one act actually is enough, right? Are, are there signs where, you know, maybe you think, you know, let me ask the question differently. How do we distinguish the need for a second act from a garden variety midlife crisis? <laughs> that's a, that's a good question. So. The two re- the, to me, there are two reasons why you don't need a second act. The first is you're just really enjoying what you're doing. Yeah. So if you're really enjoying it, then why go to something else? And the second is you're building a business for your family. You're building a legacy. And you feel really good about that and you feel good and it's relevant and it's substantial to you. So if those two things are present, then there's no reason to think about a second act. A third thing that keeps people from thinking about one is being risk averse. That's not the right reason, but it certainly happens a lot. Yeah. In fact, I imagine perversely, the riskier thing is staying in the thing that you don't find fulfilling. Correct. And, and it's riskier for your health as well as your finances. So, um, you know, you, you deal with people that are, that are considering and implementing the seven, second act that come from a variety of backgrounds. They're entrepreneurs business owners, family business owners, um, executives in large companies, small companies. Are, are, there, are there common threads to all of, to all of them or does, does the, the, the background of the individual tend to shape what the trajectory of the second act looks like? Or do people just sort of come to you and help them and say, hey, here's my life, it's a whiteboard, and then you're going to help erase it so you sort of get a fresh mental start? More the latter. I mean, uh, you know, what's common across all of those is people in their own minds, people that would appear enormously successful on their resume, 
uh, do not necessarily share that personal view. And and even more frequently is, you know, I've, it's been great to be the CEO of a company that makes catalytic mufflers, but that's not exactly the legacy that I'd like to leave. I'd like to take my my resources and my talent and do something before I step down that I feel is really good for uh, for people and and you know for humanity, and not necessarily for free. There are a lot of ways to contribute. Uh, but I want to pivot to where, it's, to me, it's more meaningful. Uh, so that's the biggest driver. So um, implicit in the second act means that you're not ready to retire. Let, let's put the financial piece aside for a minute because I think that's a sec- different, just a different kind of conversation. <clears throat> but assuming the financial wherewithal is there and people sort of make a choice between a second act versus retirement, what, what, what do you think are sort of the markers that, that suggest that a person is going to be more happy having an active second act versus, you know, going off and playing golf or fishing or playing bridge or painting, whatever it is you're doing as, as a retired person? Or is that even a choice? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm even positing a false choice. No, the, it's not. A, it is a choice. And it's, it's an interesting, it's a conversation I have frequently. Uh, I haven't met many people that want to go play golf five days a week, by the way, uh, because, again, I'm blessed with working with people that are very intelligent and very accomplished. But the, the real marker would be two things. One is people who are, are good leaders. People who are good leaders want, still want to go build things or help things. They don't want to, you know, they, they can't get enough satisfaction out of just painting, I mean, active. And obviously, people that, that still are healthy and have high energy. Uh, and you also have to think about uh, the impact on your spouse. If you're going to suddenly be at home all the time and you haven't been for the, the, the whole first years of your marriage, what's that going to do to things at home? So, uh, so from that point of view, I, I think that's the big driver. The people that just say, I want to keep doing something. Now, w- what they don't necessarily want to do is another job. And they don't want to get sucked into a lot of travel and or those pieces. So for those folks, we talk about a we call it a portfolio approach. Hmm. It's do two or three things, and uh, that you enjoy and that are meaningful. And then as you as time marches on, then you drop one of those, and now you're down to two. You're shifting your balance, and then ultimately you may drop the second one. And so it's a way of saying, I know I can still stay relevant as long as I want and be engaged. And yet I'm not, uh, you know, we, we can still have time to travel. It's, it's, we have a thing, Mike, we talk about the 85, 85, 85 plan for people that are in that space. So the first 85 is work. So it's, those are the days, there's 240 days in a year. So it's probably actually eight, uh, 245 days. So the first 85 is work. So you're doing stuff that, you know, you would call work. It's just at a, at a diminished uh, rate of intensity. Hmm. The second 85 is intellectual stimulation. So it's going to conferences, it's reading things, it's learning things, it's participating in discussions so that you're still keeping your, your intellectual juices flowing. Uh, and then the third one is recreation and travel. So more time with your spouse and, People really respond well to that that notion, and 
most of the people I work with have a lot of trouble containing the first part to 85. They, you know, they want to keep expanding that to where it's almost back to where it had been before. And, and, and so in, in your, in your role, um, I'm giving you a little bit of extra self-promotion, but that, that's okay. Cause I think, I think it's important in, in because you can kind of, it sounds like you can have that scope creep, if you will, in your chapter two, do you, or do people sort of have somebody else that tries to help keep tabs on them and say, Hey, look, I thought you wanted to do chapter two, but you're starting to look awfully chapter one ish of late <laughs> Do you. Do, do you sort of help them manage that and, and have the, and, and help them develop the habits of being a chapter two person? Yes. And, and, you know, our business model is, is pretty unique. Uh, I think Mike mentioned that all of our clients are pay it forward. They're wired to help other people. It's part of our screening. So we just have a, when you become a chapter two client, you become part of our family. And, and I look forward to and, and, you know, reach out to, to engage on both a personal and a career basis and stay in touch. And it's no one has ever abused that. Uh, if anything, people are too, too careful about wanting to take advantage of that. Uh, but it's been a wonderful part of what we do. So we talk about, about second chapters, but is that necessarily you know, the upper bound, you know, a lot of us are going to live to, to be 90 to a hundred. Um, you know, and particularly if we have some medical advances, we'll, we'll still mostly have our marbles when that happens, you know, is, is our third and fourth chapters potentially on the table in your view? Well, this is my, either my sixth or seventh. Okay. So, so they definitely are, uh, and and I think you know I would say three would be a norm. I mean, we, you know, the idea of a lifetime job or is is kind of gone away. We're all uh, the tenure in roles is is reducing constantly. The time we spend in roles and the opportunities to to make a change. So if if the average isn't three or four already or within five years, I'll be surprised. Hmm. And and what is that? what are the first steps of that transition look like? Is it, is it just simply, you know, you, you tell whoever you're working for or with that I quit, you throw in the towel, or is there something that kind of happens that, that leads up to that, 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 that begins that transition? It's definitely the latter. And, and so before I started chapter two, I spent five years leading a, an outplacement center for C-suite executives. And most of them had been completely surprised that that uh, all of a sudden they're no longer there. I mean, I mean, I didn't. This wasn't a client, but I knew one guy who, for say, had six months severance. So for six months, he went out and and got all dressed up and drove to a Starbucks and just spent the day there, so he didn't have to tell his wife he lost his job. It's very really, very, yeah. I you only I only see that on TV. I never knew people actually did that in real life. Well, in this case, he did, and huh. it's very traumatic to end up in an unplanned transition. Uh, you know, your your family is upset. Are we going to have to move? You know, what's going to happen to our country club status? And and again, I get to work with people that it's not about keeping the the roof over their head, at least short term, but but it's so disruptive. So all of our work is now focused on planning ahead. It's the voice in your head is speaking. 
And the time to start thinking about that is while you're still in the role. And, and you start by saying you want to set your compass for what would you really love to do? What would, what would give you joy? And, and it's not just the job, the title, it's the culture. It's the nature of the business. It's the meaningfulness of it. All of those points. So if you go through and define a handful of options, uh, and typically they're options a person hasn't thought of, the next step is then to say, let's go talk to been there, done that people, other pay it forward people, and they will be have a completely candid conversation. This is what we liked. This is what we didn't like. This is what surprised us. So then you take those options off the table one at a time until you're down to one or two. And the third step is then you say, now I'm going to, I'm going to adjust my LinkedIn. I'm going to think about uh, the kind of network I want to lead to that next role. So I'm going to build the campaign and then I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait till the right opportunity comes along. And, and that may either mean the right job or it could mean I get a chance to exit in a, in a, uh, financially profitable way for my company. But all that time, you're now, you can actually enjoy the job you're in more because now you know it's not forever. And you have a plan B in your pocket and you're just ready to, to activate it whenever the right time comes. So, you know, in case of transition, break glass kind of thing. Right. And, and, and you know, you, that, that scenario you bring up, I, th- I think it's so poignant because, and, and again, myself having just, having just turned 50, you know, one of the things I thought to myself is, well, you know, I, I, I better kind of like the job I have because, you know, once you, once you hit that 5-0, uh, getting that next job becomes a lot harder and requires a lot more thought and a lot more, uh, preparation. I mean, age discrimination is real, right? And so, I think you then, if you are going to make a transition, obviously you can do it. You help your clients do it. But part of the reason also they need you is because it is, I think, a little bit more challenging. And you have to be more creative and, and in a way kind of create your own role rather than wait for somebody to give it to you. Is that fair? Yeah, a couple points on that, Mike. I, I don't. Uh, I think the age discrimination is not as real as many people feel. Okay. I will tell you, if you're a a CMO or chief marketing officer, it's real because there's a perception that that you just are out of touch with the way that the 20 and 30 year olds are communicating and acting. But we have a big glut of middle management in our company because of the country because of of uh, past recession, and there is a uh, a lot of places where I call it the silver savvy group is really both needed and respected. And it's and by, sometimes it's in entrepreneurial companies. You know, I've got a client who was a CFO for two or three startups, and and she played a role not only of CFO but you know, pardon the expression, but kind of a den mother role, and it was very much appreciated. Uh, so so the second point is that uh, you and people in busy in careers are do not understand how to play the game in finding a new role. It changes all the time. It's changed dramatically. And even in the last three years, the role of search firms has dramatically changed and, and pivoting. And so, you know, if people try to do this on their own, they end up saying, uh, well, I, I think I should try this, but I'm not sure. So I'll wait till tomorrow and then I'll wait till tomorrow. And they keep procrastinating on taking the necessary steps. 
if somebody that they trust and has done it a hundred times says, this is what you ought to do next, then they go do it. So um, when I, when I think, and I just reflect on, on the mentoring that I've had the, the privilege to, to do with some of your clients, um, you know, I tend to think of, of people that are at least walking into chapter two, they're thinking of, of a new career or sitting on a nonprofit board. Are those the most common options or what, what are some other alternatives if maybe those two things don't necessarily appeal to you? What are some of the other items on the chapter two menu? The most common one is probably advisory uh, work. So uh, I'll give you one example. Uh, one of my clients it, it was, had had three chapters already. So first chapter was in medical device field. Absolutely loved it. Loved, he was actually uh, in the heart area. Loved being in the operating room. Then didn't want to move the family. So second chapter was in uh, financial services and wealth management. And the third chapter was in a, a big uh, real estate investment trust. And now it's time. And, and so as we went through this work, the first chapter was really the one that they loved the most of all the things they'd done. Going back into, you know, at a lower level wasn't going to make a lot of sense. So we, first of all, we had to build a bridge for 15, 20 years later. How do you reenter? What are your credentials? And it led to uh, finding the right people as sponsors and uh, a series of advisory advisory sort of uh, board roles that have been really, uh, really rewarding, lucrative, hard work, but, but a lot of fun as well. So that's the most common. Nonprofit organizations, uh, because most of our people are very uh, active leaders, the pace is too slow. So they, they like it for the giving back. They don't like it for the pace. And, and, and actually, board seats are not a real common outcome, partly because they're very hard to come by. Uh, yeah. and, and also, though, people who are used to making decisions are not always good on a board because now it's you need to voice your opinion, you need to respect the opinion of others, and you need to be ready for a collective judgment, not the one you feel is right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, 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 that's a great point. We, and we need to have a we need to have an episode on boards too. Um, but, but, but you're right. Having, having to share and share a lot. If you're used to, and frankly have been successful being in the driver's seat, that that's gotta be a very difficult mental transition for some. It is. Um, give, give me a, uh, well, not really a war story, I guess a success story. What is one of the more creative second acts you can recall or third or fourth acts you can recall somebody creating? <laughs> yeah, I love that question. It's So uh, I had a client who had been a serial CEO, been a CEO two or three times, happened to end up with a very nice payday and said, I just love hot air balloons. So I'm going to become a hot air balloon pilot. So he bought a hot air balloon. He went out to Phoenix to go through the FAA school, got certified to fly himself and his family. Uh, really enjoyed that. Decided he was going to take it the next step and get certified uh, as a commercial pilot. And uh, so he did that. 
he was based in Florida and he did that for a couple of years and, and then ultimately discovered that the life of a commercial a hot air balloon pilot is you wake up at three in the morning, you collaborate with the other pilots and decide where the right takeoff spots and landing spots are. So you can arrange all the equipment. You call your clients at four o'clock to tell them to meet you, where to meet you at five o'clock and you open the balloon and you serve them some champagne at sunrise and, and then you could pack up the balloon and you do the same thing the next day. Maybe you do it again at sunset. So had a blast doing it. Uh, and then ultimately report re- after three years returned to a CEO role. And, and I could think it's a, I'd like to make that point. You know, I, I would love to see in our society people, you know, just at your age, people in their fifties take a gap year. We take it as college students but way too many people end up work, 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 work until they're too frail to travel the way they would like and, and you don't have as much energy around all the pieces. So we could ever figure out in society how to say it's perfectly okay to take a gap year in your 50s for one or two years and then return highly energized. I think it'd be wonderful. Yeah, I mean, and that interesting you bring that up. So that, 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 um, that balloon story, first of all, it hadn't occurred to me there's a commercial pilot rating for hot air balloons. <laughs> it, it makes sense, right? I'm, I'm, you're not getting me in a hot air balloon anyway. But if you were, I'd rather it not be the second flight that person had ever taken. <laughs> so um, so, I, I, so I learned something there. But, but interestingly, that did wind up in effectively being, I guess, a three-year sabbatical right. uh, before I then returned to his conventional career. And uh, uh, hours aside, odd hours aside, I'm sure it was very rejuvenating for him. Absolutely. And he probably has about the best photo album you can imagine. I'm sure that's true too. And lots um, of campaign corks. So what is the process? I, I know you go through a pretty detailed and lengthy process uh, on how you figure out what that next act, I'm going to call it next act from now on, should look like. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that and, and why those steps of that process are so important? Sure. It's really three steps. So step one is discernment. It's, it's what would you really like to do? What culture would you enjoy? What's the right, you know, are you better suited to a small company or a large company? Uh, you know, all of those kind of factors. And we do that through uh, a series of assessments uh, that we put together. I, I use a term that Again, I get to work with very bright people. They know things about themselves, but if I use the television vernacular, they don't they don't have the dots connected as high definition pixels. So the picture's not clear. They're just data points. And so through that process, and we end up spending three hours with a industrial psychologist that I've used this, we've done this hundreds of times together now. And it's a very revealing process. And and now we typically say these are the three or five options that you should focus on. Usually half of those are ones they've never thought of, never occurred to them. We also say these are the things you should avoid because when people start thinking about a transition, they want to look at everything. It's like a big market and you know, I want to go down every aisle and it's a mistake to chase rainbows and, and, and you confuse your friends and you, know, you say, well, I was talking about this, but now I'm talking about this. So it's important to say what should you avoid and what should you focus on. So that's the step one. And then once we 
we get that defined, it's these conversations I mentioned earlier with been there, done that people. That And you say, you know, I know I could do that, but that's not as exciting to me as the second one on the list. So I'm going to drop that one off the list. The third part is how do you get yourself in the market? So, and that means uh, that, that opportunities, the ones you want are going to find you. And they're going to find you through uh, the way you represent yourself on LinkedIn. They're going to find you through the uh, leadership story that goes to your friends and colleagues. They're going to find you through what you say when you get a chance to talk to people face to face. And and it's uh, one one of the things we've learned is the more crisp you are, the faster things happen. People that say, "Well, people that say this is what I want," don't get very far. It has to be this is how I can help this organization grow and succeed. And then uh, people that say I can do anything are not credible. So it's a it's a whole process to say this is your message, and this is where you play it and how to play it. And then it's just working with, and we end up with some amazing stories, you know, with people about uh, once they get in that stage. Uh, and sometimes it's you know they things happen, the company gets they need to stay for a while longer or all kinds of things happen, but we end up being an advisor through the process of exploring uh, and even negotiating uh, roles as well. So uh, we're talking with Jim Dupree of chapter two. Um, so I'm, I'm going to sneak in, I'm going to sneak in some free consulting for myself or asking for a friend because I have you on the podcast. Have any of your, have any of your clients ever gone into academia as a, as a, as the next chapter. Yes. That's, that's something I, I, I I've thought about cause I, uh, one, I, I looked the part, but, um, uh, you know, I wonder, I wonder how many people kind of think, you know, I really wish I could have studied X when I was in college and you sort of go back and, and, and sometimes going to college too, when you just don't give an F when anybody thinks about you, <laughs> that, that can also be very liberating. I would imagine. Yeah, Mike. And so, uh, a few years ago, more than a few, probably you know, 15, 20 years ago now, I actually explored uh, pivoting uh, from when I was at IBM into teaching business school. And I met with the dean of a business school, a noted business school, and he said, you're not going to be happy. I <laughs> uh, said, so first of all, the best executives are not necessarily the best teachers. So you know, we would need to figure out if you were really a good teacher. But secondly, you're not going to be happy because in academia, there's a pecking order. And if you don't have a PhD, you don't have a voice at the table. You may sit there and listen, but you don't get to say, this is how I think we should do it. And then you get no vote. And, and so unless you're willing to take the time out to go do that, you know, just keep that in mind. Now, since then, as you mentioned, I, I teach at, uh, to MBA students at Kennesaw and I teach ethics. And, uh, and I have complete freedom for how I construct that course and teach it. But many of the courses now are highly scripted. They're 80% of what you teach has to be through the, you know, from the book, basically. And so you don't have the degree of freedom to go build something that you think. So it's a, it's a good gig. It pays best for people that have a CPA because there's a real shortage. It pays worse for people that want to be an English teacher. Yep. Uh, it's nice summer vacations. It can be a platform for consulting. 
Uh, but it, it's the driven people that, that are most of my clients. Uh, very few of them have selected that. A couple have, but very few. So um, running out of time, I'll be respectful of your time. I know you got to get back to doing what you're, what you're doing. But um, the last thing I, I want to ask specifically is why is an outside perspective so helpful? I mean, everybody that you're dealing with, I, I know because I've met them, they are intelligent, they are focused, I would even say largely self-aware people. Why do they need help figuring out something like this? Why do they need an outside party, a, a third person, an advisor to, to help figure this out? So everybody needs somebody to bounce their thoughts off of. Uh, and what I've learned is friends don't work for this discussion. Mm. Uh, they won't be on it. They, they won't tell you what you need to hear because they're afraid of hurting your feelings. Yep. And sometimes they have their own bias about, well, if you got into this, you know, then there's a way that that would actually help me too. Uh, the second thing that happens, you know, if you, if you talk to three lawyers, you're going to get three different opinions. And if you talk to three friends, you're going to get three different opinions. So you say, all right, I'm going to have a hundred cups of coffee over the next year. And with my friends, I'm going to figure this out. At the end of the year, you have 50 different opinions and that, that don't jive together. And, and generally, friends don't, you know, this is not your specialty. Uh, it's not their specialty. So how this whole process works has a, a big impact on, on the really realism of the things you may consider. So I just have learned that people wasted a lot of time and got nowhere, uh, you know, and without this kind of help. Now, obviously some people have figured it out and, and some have done it brilliantly on their own. Some have been lucky. Uh, it's not for everybody, but for those that sincerely want to say, I really want to get the best next act in my career. I believe that, that uh, this kind of advice and process is immensely helpful and makes things work faster. And you know, that, that sounds a lot like what I advise people when they're trying to get advice in their startup. Um, your friends will cheer you on because, frankly, they don't, they don't have any skin in the game. The skin in the game is to spare your feelings, basically. And that's often where the worst advice comes from. Um, and, and I'll bet you there are a lot of similarities there. So I, I, I think I understand that. Um, Jim, this has been a great conversation. Uh, we're running out of time, but I'm sure there's lots of other questions we could have covered, should have covered. Somebody's going to want to contact you and learn more. How, how can they do that? The best way is through our website, which is www.chapter2.net. And it's TWO, not uh, the number two, and there's no hyphens or anything. Because there's a contact us, you can get directly to me through that. You can also, there's some uh, pretty useful information there. So, so chapter2.net. Well, thanks again. That's going to wrap it up for today's program. Uh, I'd like to thank Jim Dupree of Chapter 2 so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week, so please tune in so that when you're faced with your next executive decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us and can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Wine Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.